Welcome to the Badlands, that overlooked place where philosophical thought runs into the political concerns of the day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Napolitano, and with me this week are Michael Hughes. How's it going, Michael? Hey, Toby. Pretty and, good. And Hannah Gunn. Hey. Hi. Hi. So before we start, I do just want to remind people, especially if you listen on iTunes, if you could take the time to give us a five-star rating, we'd appreciate it. Currently, going to be honest with you, we have 11 ratings, all five-star, which is very good, but I know that there are many more than 11 people who listen to this. So if you're one of those people who listen on the iTunes and you feel like it, take the time to give us a five-star rating. We'd appreciate that a lot. Okay. Before we get to the, the serious stuff, talking about world happiness, uh, one question that's been on my mind, Michael, that I've been needing to ask you, were you able to design a successful and diabolical egg hunt this past weekend? Oh, no, I failed in that regard. I'm sorry. Shit, have you just realized why you're in the dog box? <laughs> yes, that's right. That means doghouse to all the American listeners. <laughs> dog is, box is, sounds fun. It does. <laughs> it's like a. Uh, is there a story behind this? I mean, the, we, don't, we don't need to get I into did, this if you don't want to. But I'm, I'm curious why I why I failed to. You, you ruined a family tradition. Uh, so actually, it. My family visited the week before, and so we kind of, like, celebrated Easter in some ways. So, uh, so that, like, got rid of the need for the egg hunt? I guess so. That's she a didn't shame. <laughs> See, Michael, it might be that by this point in time, you're meant to know what's expected. Well... I, I need to just make a clip of that that little <laughs> bit of audio of you saying well. Uh oh my goodness, that was amazing. <laughs> so anyways, uh this episode <laughs> Which might be Michael's last. He may <laughs> never get out of the sin bin. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, but this is a this is a serious podcast for serious people. Hey, it's happiness week. That's true. So we're talking about the twenty nineteen World Happiness Report. This week that was put out. And we're going to talk about some of the results and uh, interesting studies in the report. So some of the topics we'll touch on today are the connections between uh, happiness and voting and also pro-social behavior like volunteering and giving to charity. And the next week we'll look at the second half of the report which focuses on the sad state of happiness in the United States and the effects of social media and addiction on happiness. So I guess I'll just start by saying what the World Happiness Report is and, and what the point of it is. So the World Happiness Report is an annual report which started in 2012 in support of a UN high-level meeting on well-being and happiness defining a new economic paradigm. So for those of you who don't know, uh, the World Happiness Report is essentially a collection of international psychological studies and, and findings designed to get a better sense of how things are in the world beyond the more traditional approach of using economic metrics as a proxy for happiness or well-being. And the report doesn't just aim to show us which places in the world are happy and which aren't, but also to understand what variables do and do not affect happiness, and also to understand how levels of happiness or unhappiness can explain various kinds of behaviors. The hope in the end is that uh, a metric of happiness can be used to, to guide and inform policy in the way that economic metrics might now primarily be used for. I mean, I guess, so one thing that 
should sort of jump right off the bat is that this kind of approach seems right and necessary, right? It, it does seem like, to a large extent, traditional discussions of well-being do focus too heavily, do have a, a sort of heavily economized view of the world, the assumption being that if the economy of a nation is doing well or something like that, then that means people are well off. That's obviously an oversimplification. And this kind of report and this kind of method should help to give us a bit more nuance in understanding how people are doing in a particular place. So previously, the economic metric, because you said economic metrics, which makes it sound like there's many, but most often, my understanding at least, is it was pretty much just taken that GDP was a good proxy for the well-being of a community, which is gross domestic product. So per capita, well, usually. Yeah. yeah. But still, I mean, it's, yeah. it's entirely possible, for instance, that a lot of incredibly wealthy people um, who do a lot of trading or whatever it is that makes GDP look good. Um, <laughs> but the vast majority of people are in poverty. Um, so you can end up with some pretty skewed uh, readings of how well people's lives are going if you just rely on GDP. Yeah. So obviously, I mean, the per capita GDP has a serious statistical shortcomings. I mean, for God's sake, at least use the median, right? Because obviously the per capita GDP doesn't give anyone any sense of the distribution of resources. But then obviously, even once you do that, um, even if you're getting a clearer picture of the economic situation, it doesn't tell you anything about the cultural situation, the social situation, all of these other factors, which we'll talk about in more detail that actually go into determining whether people's lives go well or not. The only caveats to, to a couple of the things you just said, I mean, one, one thing I, we probably should flag up front is this alternative methodology, while it certainly is in the right direction, still is subject to some of the problems that GDP is subject to, right? So you can still get um, significant inequality in the distribution of uh, well-being as it's being measured here, right? And so things like the standard deviation of the well-being metrics could reflect major inequality in a society. And so there's still those kinds of complications, even on this kind of approach to trying to measure yeah. well-being. Um, maybe I should get into the method then. I mean, that, that is right. So it's still, it's largely the data is presented at the level of nation, right? So it does blur a lot of the details, um, though, as you mentioned, there are, there is some information, standard deviation, and they do talk about... Um, happiness and equality, which is an interesting kind of phenomenon. But I guess before we move on, I should just say a bit more about the method, right? Because the, the immediate question that should come up is like, okay, you know, this sounds cool, right? Happiness is a good thing. It's a thing everyone values. But how the hell do you measure that, right? Ca so, counting, counting smiles. Yes. <laughs> yes. We've heard that before. <laughs> I wonder if he's listening to this podcast. I don't know. This maybe episode's for you, bud. Yeah. That's been ringing in my mind. But that is, you know... The report has been dismissed by economists and others, right, who support these GDP metrics as trying to sort of measure something ineffable, right, something that can't, right. you can't get a good purchase on. And what kind of data are you going to use to determine how happy people are? Um, yeah, so that's just really stupid. That's a really stupid take on the report. <laughs> um, and also, if economists want to make normative claims from economic data, that's also really stupid. Um, and I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> right. So so let me just give some of the details of the method here. So the happiness report, and, and we can talk about um, a lot of these 
some of the interesting details of the method. So it relies on subjective well-being reports of various kinds, which come from polls conducted by Gallup annually in over 140 countries. And the 2019 report makes use of data collected from 2005 to 2018. There are basically three main components of happiness or three main metrics that are, uh, that are measured uh, in the report. The first one and the one that is, I think, featured most prominently is life evaluation. So this is done by using a Cantrell ladder measure, which basically asks respondents to consider a life which is going as bad as it can go as a zero and one which is going as well as it can go as a 10. And then it asks you to sort of place between zero and 10 where your current life is. So this is the sort of ladder metaphor. So that's how life evaluation is measured. The next thing that's measured is positive affect, which is basically it comprises the average frequency of happiness, laughter, and enjoyment on the previous day. So happy, nice feelings. How often do they occur, right? Uh, and then finally, negative affect is, is measured, which is the average frequency of worry, sadness, and anger on the previous day. So how often you're having these negative emotions. So that that is the way in which happiness is being measured. Those are the the phenomena that are being measured here. So I guess one thing to make clear is like, and, and Michael and I, we had this discussion earlier. It's not as though the psychologists are committed to having a substantive philosophical theory of what happiness is, which perhaps is what the economists are accusing the psychologists of doing and, and thus not being able to, to measure. But what, they're, what they are doing are measuring these self-evaluations of how people's lives are going. So you might say it's, you know, if, if you, depending on your view of happiness, you could say, well, it's not really happiness. It's how happy people think they are. But that's still something. <laughs> it's actually pretty good. Well, the, the few things to like keep in mind, one is they're not claiming, they're not making, they're not committing themselves to any substantive position on the nature of happiness, right? These things are proxies for sort of overall well-being, however you think that can be appropriately understood. And I think there's a position available to the authors of the report to say, these various indicators that we're looking at are potentially useful proxies for whatever it is that you think constitutes a good life, right? You think that these go hand in hand with that. And the the other thing that they can note is GDP is at best another kind of proxy for those kinds of things that actually should matter when we're evaluating a good life. And this seems like at the very least, an interesting and reasonable alternative to that other kind of proxy for for trying to estimate how well people's lives are going. So I guess one thing that's a little bit interesting is the way that this interacts with the philosophical literature on happiness, which I briefly perused on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy uh, when reading the report. In the philosophical literature, there's often a distinction made between well-being and happiness, where well-being is sort of is what you were talking about, Michael, is sort of a measure of how well life is going um, as a whole. So this is a kind of an objective measure, um, or at least can be, whereas hap happiness is considered as a kind of emotion where that, that need not be understood as a mood. It can be a sort of like really macroscopic, stable kind of emotion. There are different theories on it, which will include things like your overall feeling to how your life is going, which actually matches up quite nicely with the, the life evaluation metric in the report. Other theories will just sort of uh, weigh up your, you know, the hedonistic theories will weigh up your pleasurable experiences with your 
unpleasant experiences, and the positive and negative affect kind of get at that. So I think in some ways the um, there's actually kind of a nice connection between the report's metrics and the state of the philosophical literature, as I gathered from a, a quick perusal. Well, they are covers clearly, a lot of those bases. They are clearly familiar with it. Yeah. As they, I mean, so they cite um, Aristotle and some of Aristotle's comments on happiness, uh, where for Aristotle, the the good life, the flourishing life, which is another one of the you know descriptors that's sometimes used. Um, for the way that the ancients thought about this kind of project was one which had these objective markers of well-being, but also needed to come with certain material goods and sensations of pleasure. So it's not possible to have, you know, the good life without also having moments of pleasure. Um, they kind of both need to be there. Which maybe surprisingly to non-philosophers, um, there are some theories of the good life uh, that would not require you to have pleasurable sensations. Uh, That's right. Experience just moments matters that you have virtue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so by focusing on happiness rather than well-being. That's one of the things that allows the authors of the report to sort of not take a they, they don't have to commit themselves to a kind of objective view of what a good life is, which would be a very difficult and philosophical project. So it's good that they don't have to do that. By measuring happiness, you're measuring something else, right? You're you're measuring these kinds of stable emotional states. And one of the things that I think is nice about the subjectivity of that is that sort of the immediate consequence of that is it by having a, a subjective approach, you allow for a lot of flexibility in what people can see as being good ways to live, right? Um, you, you, if you're doing these kinds of studies, you know, especially an international study, you don't want to say like, this is what a, you know, a good life is uh, in America and it's the same everywhere else, right? So, so this doesn't run into that because it uh, relies on people's self-reports so they can have – there's quite a variety of, of ways that their lives could be going such that they can feel good about it or feel bad about it. So that's a potentially nice feature, I think. So, I mean, did you guys try to do the Cantrell ladder measure? Did you evaluate the state of your life? Did you imagine the zero-level dystopia and the ten-level utopia uh, and place your current existence on a sliding scale in between? I try to never ask myself questions like that. <laughs> I had some students once who gave me that response, too. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe well, it's very I'm... sensible, right? You don't note you know, the dissatisfaction you might have if you just never... Guys, Ask how things could be better. Guys, I thought we were supposed to be living the examined life. What the heck? Oh. I'm not oh. saying that I did that. We're just, you know, bludgeoning <laughs> Michael for doing that. <laughs> yeah, I found, I found it difficult. Yeah. But probably, the, like, I think it's difficult for a philosopher. So for someone who's going to overthink this, it's an impossible task. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I kind of get trapped in the... So, you know, there are things that I know could be improved. So, like, every time I make the bed, the bed legs fall off. Why do the bed legs fall off? Because I bought the bed five years ago, cost $50, and all the fucking screws are gone. And we don't have enough money, which is why you should give us five-star ratings on iTunes. <laughs> but That doesn't give us money, by the way, but maybe down the road. Anyways. If I was trying to evaluate my life quality, and that's the kind of stuff I'm thinking of, I'm sufficiently, like... That's what we call the first world problem. Yeah, well, I'm kind of like, well, it's not really a problem. I still have a bed to sleep on. It's still got a mattress on it. I can prop the legs out. It's fine. It's, you know, it's when you make the bed that the problems occur. It's generally okay. Like, it's doable. It's serviceable. And if I was really being pissed off about it, 
we've got some duct tape and we've got some cable ties. You know, I could fix this problem. So it's kind of, I don't know. So, okay, so so you would just put yourself at a 10 because you're like, I have no problem. Like, nothing that I have is a real problem. So it's so that, that's what I do. Yeah, you're, I would. You're I would living discount your best them life, as... as the kids would say these days. Oh, there's a grossness about saying that though, too. <laughs> that's why I said it. Um, <laughs> well, so I was almost wondering if it goes in the other direction. So I, I, I'm gonna have to spoil the results, right? So, which we should probably talk about. But so the the world mean in 2019 is a 5.2. Mm-hmm. I should, there should have been a drum roll and everything. Like, the state of <laughs> happiness on planet Earth is 5.2. Oh. I mean, it's okay, right? But I was wondering, like, do you think that because of the subjectivity of it, do you think that it's always going to be kind of comparative in nature and thus yes. always kind of yeah. tends towards the middle? Because what yeah, people and, might yeah. be doing, right? Because, so, like, what is a 10? I can't imagine what that is. No, I don't know. Right. Our, our imagination is limited by like the kinds of lives that people are living now. So you're like comparing like, okay, that person's got a really like Theon Greyjoy. That's real bad. Okay. That's zero. Maybe not zero. Well, that's pretty fucking bad. No, He's doing better now. <laughs> I guess. Um, <laughs> and then you're like 10. I, I don't even know who is 10 now, right? That's a substantive dispute to have. Right. Uh, 10. I don't know. You're, you're like some rich guy who can do whatever they want. I guess. Maybe not. Right. But. But you're always kind of limited by, like, whatever the best kind of life is now. And in the future, that could change. So you might kind of always be positioning yourself relative to other kinds of lives. Right. Which like, isn't a problem. It's just – it's interesting, I guess. The, the the other problem I had was I didn't actually have that much of a problem with the Cantrell ladder part. So, like, overall, I think when just considering the external constraints of my life that would prevent me from sort of living well – I could say my life is going reasonably well on, on those terms. It's the negative and positive affect, the mm. emotional states. Amy observed to me, <laughs> made the following observation about me one day. She's like, you know, it's not your fault. You just have a really low joy threshold. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, does that mean that it's easy for you to experience joy or you almost never experience joy? No, it's just that my the threat, the, the peak thresh, the peak joy state for me uh. is just, not particularly. So you high. have a, you have a low joy ceiling is the problem. Yes, exactly. Well, Actually, I she said I, I don't emote very much either. But Amy does, so I mean, yeah. she might just have a really high she has, joy ceiling. She just she has an incredibly high joy ceiling. <laughs> I love that we've coined the term joy ceiling. I'm gonna I'm gonna now, tweet this out. It's gonna be huge. Well, she said it. So we watched. We were watching the show um, Happy-ish, which was a comedy about a bloke who was miserable as a marketing exec. And it's he, he's the kind of guy who has all of the material trappings of like a happy life, but none of the happiness that one would expect to go with it. Uh, and he was one who sort of made this observation that people have different joy thresholds and is probably I think she actually did say it right. She said and he said the joy threshold is low for those people. They're just mm-hmm. or the joy ceiling's low. So. The Badlands is a is a low joy ceiling podcast. <laughs> oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. I, I get too caught between like it would feel like whinging and complaining to put yourself low, right? <laughs> and it would feel yeah. like showing off or bragging to rate yourself high as well. That is such a you problem. <laughs> no, I, I. It feels I like actually... putting yourself at a five, but then putting yourself on a five is indecisive. 
also <laughs> dismissive because of all of the people whose lives are seriously much worse than yours. So you right. ought to put it higher in order to appropriately show that you do understand that actually you're pretty well off. But right. on the same hand, right, so that's where I get stuck. Okay, but it's not bragging. It's not like you're going around to everyone who are like twos <laughs> and threes and you're like, I'm a seven. <laughs> Take that. I crushed you on this thing. I actually have a t-shirt made that... that's just a nine. <laughs> okay, so we, we clearly failed at this. <laughs> Anyway, so let's start talking about some of the results, the interesting stuff about the methods. So as I said, Earth 2019, 5.2. Now that's down from the 2010-2011 era, happiness era, which is about a 5.4. So things have trended down a bit. Positive affect in 2019 is 0.73, which I think means on 73% of days, roughly, uh, people are experiencing positive emotions. And negative affect is 0.28. So 28% of days are experiencing these bad negative emotions. Some of the dynamics, I said the overall life evaluation is down a bit overall. Um, positive affect has been roughly stable. The interesting thing is negative affect has gone up significantly since 2011 from 0.22 to 0.28. And if I remember correctly, I think this was largely because of increases in negative affect in large countries around the world. Yeah, the, like the top five largest countries, I think. I think the U.S. is one of those. <laughs> so close to 30% of people's days are negative affect. Yep. Where previously closer to 20% of people's days were neg- negative affect. Yep. Okay. All right. So one question I just I had about that is, is it that when considering the day overall, they have to choose between a positive affect or a negative affect? Or is it the case that the day could actually have both, right? That includes lots of positive emotions for some part of the day and anger yeah, resentment it would, it would seem hard negativity. to have days which didn't have a little bit of both but given that the numbers are 0.73 and 0.28 it kind of looks like they had to choose one or the other okay i mean like i don't know anybody but the number, those like, numbers are suspicious right because they just about add up to one right like, i would i would get stuck again because <laughs> you know even a cloudy morning can go on to a fine day you know, so even when you wake up, pissed off. Every day you go on Twitter. <laughs> I don't go on Twitter. But that's smart. I don't think every any day. of us really go on Twitter every day. It sounds like any... Michael might go on Twitter. Once... <laughs> Busted. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard to draw any conclusions at the world level. It's interesting to hear those stats. Um, they break it down by regions in, in a sort of weird kind of way, um, which also that's a really high level uh figure so there isn't too much to learn from that it is kind of interesting basically the you upshot the is highest of the highs and the lowest yeah the, lowest. the americas in australia new zealand and western europe are the highest latin america and the caribbean is yeah, actually pretty high as well the lowest regions are middle east and africa and south asia is the lowest the country with the highest happiness rating congratulations finland you did it almost eight on the life <laughs> evaluation scale that is and impressive. once again right I think they were actually moved up from second recently, and they oh. beat out either Sweden or Denmark. I think those are two and three. How do we know that they're just following Hannah's thread earlier? How do we know that they're not just an incredibly smug people? <laughs> I guess we don't now. Uh, you know, we've introduced a new interpretation of the data, and we're going to have to send this in. 
and uh, yeah. get them to revise in light of that um, poss yeah. possibility. United States, number 19. A high six. Hey, you know what? That's not bad. It's just, you know, as an American, I don't know. We, we have like... You wanted a gold I, medal. I, yeah, I, I almost want to retake this and I want to just game the system and, and just be like, just so we can win, right? Just be like 10, 10, 10. No, no but now you get to unhappy gloat. Not you know really. that thing At people a high do six, when it's like some the worst like, possible spot. I'm so happy, and then you'd be like, "Well, I'm miserable." Right? <laughs> you know, you know, that, some people that do thing. that. Yeah, that's real fun. It's like somebody says they're sick, and somebody tries to outsick them. Oh yeah, I try to. I, I definitely try to hang out with those people as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. uh, so USA is number nineteen. It's actually happiness has gone down, I believe, in the US a bit uh, over the years. Uh, South Sudan is number 156. That's last at a high two. That's pretty bad. Um, actually, the U.S. has had one of the larger drops since 2005, almost half a point. So we were well above seven at one point. So so one thing I, I thought was interesting about the report was uh, this discussion of happiness and equality. And there are a couple of different ways I would have thought you might want to measure uh, happiness and equality. And in the report, they suggest that we should look at it in terms of uh, the standard deviation within countries. I'm not sure that that is the most intuitive way to think about inequality. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily how we would think about it uh, when it comes to socioeconomic inequality. Um, but nevertheless, it seems like an important thing to pay attention to, right? So insofar as you think that economic inequality is bad, you probably think it's bad because it means people's lives are going worse than they otherwise should be. Um, and so it seems like it is an important um, thing to pay attention to when um, policymakers are trying to craft policy that is actually going to optimize these sorts of metrics, right? And try to promote overall well-being. Happiness is close to the thing that in the end we actually care about, right? All the economic intermediaries are often good proxies, but sometimes not. Like this gets closer to the thing that is actually what is the goal, <laughs> right. which is nice. And so, so one of the, I guess one question is, to what degree does happiness and equality, I, they don't talk about this in the report much, but uh, it's nevertheless an interesting question. To what degree does happiness and equality track economic inequality? I mean, one thing to, to point out is that the report suggests that happiness and equality has maybe increased a little bit, but it hasn't, there hasn't been this explosion of happiness and equality. Whereas when people talk about economic inequality, right, um, most people recognize that there has been an explosion of economic inequality. And so in some ways, these sorts of inequalities come apart. I'm not sure what to make of that, but it seems like an interesting thing to note. So I mean, one of the things that it's, it's, sort of, it's risky to assume that everybody who is poor is miserable, right? Um, one of the ways in which that's bad is assuming that income level, you know, tracks accurately with happiness or life satisfaction uh, all the time can cause you to really engage in some pretty classist kinds of attitudes towards um, others and to devalue certain kinds of lives yep. and to sort of, you know, uh, I don't quite know how to put it. So devalue the richness um, of someone's life, right? Uh, they may not have the, all of the new things, but they maybe have more time spent with friends and family, right? There can be other things in their lives that are more fulfilling for them than material goods. So I, there, there are a number of uh, down 
downsides to using the sort of economic metric and assuming that wealth and happiness or wealth and life fulfillment go together really strongly, uh, even putting aside people who might choose to live very frugally, right? That's sort of a separate issue as well. Though their GDP would presumably track their bank accounts. So depending what their income is, right, they may have a lot of money or they may not have very much money. And this kind of just goes back to some of your earlier points about some of the value of having it be a subjective report measure. But we can put it in, so we can put people's subjective reports of their happiness in communication, at least with the data, right? So put the data in communication with what we are measuring objectively that we take to be uh, sort of indicators of sort of objective standards of, of living. So somebody might report a very high level of well-being, and then we look and see what kinds of facilities, public works, da 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 is available to them. And we might notice some really interesting things that come out between these different groups. And that's part of the happiness inequality, right? That really gives you a window into those kinds of effects where it might not otherwise be obvious what kinds of things actually enable people to live lives that they themselves find fulfilling with the kinds of, say, policy initiatives or vested interests that we have, which might come from a more sort of objective or stats-driven perspective, right? Um, so the the happiness inequality, I think, gives you a pretty interesting way to engage people's subjective reports <laughs> of what they're experiencing with data that is is always going to be accessible to us, but can lead to us to make sorts of weird devaluing kinds of assumptions about the qualities of people's lives, right? You imagine going into a neighborhood and just sort of imposing your lifestyle on those people, right? And assuming that they're all miserable bastards or something, right? Which just <laughs> doesn't necessarily going to follow. Yeah. I mean, so one question is the connection between uh, happiness and life evaluation and wealth. A different one would be, right? So right, as, as you noted, right, people can be in poverty yet still be fairly happy. I wonder if the effect of economic inequality sort of in the in the community or in the country changes that right so especially if the if when people are making their life evaluations if they're doing it in a comparative way and they're thinking about other people in their country perhaps um i wonder if increases in economic uh inequality would would uh increase happiness and inequality as well there's, there's another relationship here that i've i've not in this report but in various other articles on this topic, the thing that I've read a number of people point out is that economic inequality may, and, and this is an important sort of caveat, economic inequality may not increase happiness inequality, but it may actually suppress happiness, right? The actual mean happiness of a society may actually be lower when there's higher economic inequality, even if there's less happiness inequality. Um, and I, I don't know, I can't remember if this report at any point makes that observation, but I've certainly seen lots of other articles in the past make that observation. Yeah, so the report doesn't say too much about happiness and equality, and maybe now would be good to to get to the variables that they do see as explaining the various scores that countries have uh, with respect to their happiness. So the, the six things that they measure, which they see, I think that they think these are the most explanatory properties of, of a nation that explain its happiness. And so they are, and this is not an order of importance um, that we can talk about that later. GDP per capita. So the overall wealth of the nation, 
social support, which they define as sort of they, they'll ask people, you know, is there someone you can count on if you are, you know, in a bad situation or you need help or something like that? Um, healthy life expectancy, freedom, generosity, and the absence of corruption. So six variables which they see as being explanatory of levels of happiness in a particular country. Uh, a couple of notes on that. Um, so they, they note that, and I'm just quoting here, per capita income and healthy life expectancy have significant effects on life evaluations, but not in these national average data on either positive or negative affect, which is interesting. So wealthy nations do not laugh more or, uh, <laughs> or worry more. They say social support can be seen to have similar proportionate effects on positive and negative emotions as on life evaluations. Freedom and generosity have even larger influences on positive affect than on life evaluations, and negative affect is significantly reduced by social support, freedom, and absence of corruption. And I think they actually list the the variables in terms of how explanatory they are, and the most explanatory one is social support. Then it's per capita GDP, then healthy healthy life expectancy, then freedom, then generosity, then absence of corruption. So that's interesting, and, and this is partly what explains why Latin American and Caribbean countries score highly uh, overall with respect to happiness is because they do very well with respect to social support, uh, even if they're not particularly wealthy. Does social support include, like, can the government count? I don't think it's it's meant to. Right. I think it's sort of purely your social networks. Um, so it's getting at a kind of the presence of, of, of robust communities that Local people can community. rely on. I think so, yes. It's I. I couldn't tell because it did talk about the way in which people not just interface with each other, but their institutions. Mm. And maybe that, I mean, obviously that's ambiguous. It could mean sort of social and cultural local institutions or could it act, could it be inclusive of government institutions as well. Um, but it does seem it's like it's highly personalized. So if there are government institutions that provide this kind of social support, they have to be the kind that provide you know, personal connection, right? And not just FEMA. <laughs> yeah, well, so that's where I'm wondering, so generosity might, like, what does generosity track? I mean, what does freedom track? Freedom plausibly is like political and legal freedoms, but also could be to do with whether or not the, you know, local people around you allow you to make many of your own uh, life choices. Um or whether or not your situation, right, if you're in a wheelchair or something, you might rate yourself as having less freedom. Right. I was so thinking, I was thinking economic, economic freedom could also... And economic freedom. Yeah. Yeah, I think the way they word it, the way they talk about it in the report, leaves it very much wide open and all of those things could affect the score. Because I think it's just something like, to what extent do you feel like you can do what you want with your life or, you know, make... Are you know are free to make choices with respect to how your life goes or something like that? So th that leaves it very much open, and all of those things I think in principle could could influence it. Generosity, I think, and we'll talk about this more later. We'll get at specifically things like volunteering and donating money, which there were some interesting stats on that, but we'll definitely get to that uh, later. With respect to social support and governmental support, I think those are separate because they they do talk about. So they have this interesting tidbit here on um, quality of delivery of government and its effect on happiness, um, where, where the quality of delivery means effectiveness, rule of law, quality of regulation, control of corruption. Interesting tidbit. 
when that goes up, when the quality of delivery goes up, happiness goes up. But interestingly, levels of democracy do not change levels of happiness. So people don't necessarily care <laughs> about whether they have uh, a say in it or not. They just want the shit to work, <laughs> yeah, right. at least given these findings. That's what it would suggest. This is another area where potentially being philosophers gives you a really skewed view on what people find important. <laughs> but I mean, I guess one of the upshots, obviously, and we've been emphasizing this point, is, is that having these six variables really shows you the inadequacy of the purely economic metrics, right? Especially when GDP, which again, as far as economic metrics go, probably isn't the best, isn't even the most explanatory, right? Social support is. Um, so that tells you that it's it's already missing quite a lot. And then there are all of these other things as well. And of course, you know, overall wealth will correlate probably with things like healthy life expectancy. Um, I don't, Maybe it does by accident for freedom and generosity and things like that. But all of these things can come apart, right? Which is the important thing. I guess GDP for me, because it is second on their list. It's maybe higher than I would have thought if you'd given me these written on like index cards and scattered them on the ground and asked me to order them. I probably would have thought healthy life expectancy... And I don't know, I'm not sure, but I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have put GDP second. But now I'm trying to think through how I would have sorted the other ones. But yeah, it, it's kind of, it is interesting to me that GDP still is second most explanatory. Um, but as you point out, it could be because of this relationship between GDP and just some of these other measures, healthy life expectancy, I think being the That's clearest. It's going to make a lot of things easier. But um, I don't, uh, it's connection to freedom, generosity and corruption is very... Yeah, tenuous. Not, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, it's not very well, so, so I think it I think it very much depends. So in some ways, I think it might be our, that sort of judgment reflects the kind of privileged position people have in coming from fairly, you know, from wealthy nations, yeah. right? Where having a low GDP can be crippling for all of these other metrics and is sort of the central explanatory variable for them in extremely poor countries. And when you look at the list of the happiness sort of reports, most of the countries at the very bottom of the list are the most, you know, extremely destitute. And so it doesn't surprise me that you would see that relationship mm -hmm. uh, at that end of the list. Yeah. Uh, it would seem like I can sort of see that judgment making a lot more sense once you get to the sort of upper portion of the list where most of people's basic material needs are satisfied and then which of these variables you tweak um, has more impact for people. It seems like, you know, uh, social support, healthy life expectancy probably would matter more in those cases. Yeah. So, and it's, um, it's interesting to say that as well. And partly because the corruption one for me stands out more, but it's also, I think it's been a point of New Zealand national pride <laughs> <laughs> some time that New Zealand frequently scores highest as one of the countries with the least corruption um, in the government. So um, and, and it again, does stand out to yeah. me, you know, as one of the things that you say, right, it's sort of this comparison. So I think about corruption, I think about being in the US is a very different sort of mental series of thoughts than if I think about sort of corruption in, in New Zealand. Um, but but it, and again, we're sort of at the upper end. I would imagine yeah. that would matter most in war-torn countries that mm -hmm. are you know, politically unstable 
And of course, again, the causal interaction between those are incredibly tight. Yeah, a lot of these things are going to go together, obviously, especially at the bottom of the list. So I, I just had, I guess, one interesting tidbit that they noted. I'll just, I'm just quoting here. They say, Table 16 to 18 of Statistical Appendix 2. Look for linkages between average life evaluations and a number of government characteristics, including different forms of democratic institutions, social safety net coverage, and percent of GDP devoted to education, healthcare, and military spending. The only characteristics that contribute beyond what is explained by the six variables that we just talked about and reasonable fixed effects are the shares of GDP devoted to healthcare and military spending, yeah. the former having That's a positive effect and the latter a negative one. That's interesting. But to me, that sums up exactly why the United States is 19. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I guess it is just interesting that, like, uh, safety net spending and, and education spending didn't have these effects. It was, in particular, health care and defense. Or I shouldn't say defense, right? That's a... That's a very American way to put a, it. <laughs> recent American, fairly recently. That didn't used to be uh, how it was talked about in America. But, yeah, military spending. Yeah, I found that interesting. How do you make sense of that, right? Like... Does it existential crisis? You know, there's yeah, sort of different types, but the feeling like if I get a cold, I'm not immediately going to die might sort of pretty fairly strongly affect your day to day feelings of helplessness, uh, existential crisis, well being. I I would also think that it it would correlate with things like significant inequality. Mm -hmm. um, it's more likely that states are going to have massive military spending when they actually have significant inequality uh, or are promoting global inequality or. Well, I mean, one, one obvious thing is that war-torn countries are probably going to be spending a lot of their GDP on military. Right. Although I don't know yeah. if that say, is, they say um, they're holding fixed regional effects. I'm not sure what that includes. So I, I'm, I'm not sure on the details of how to interpret this, but I mean, one of the, one of the things that comes out of this report is, yeah, there's just a lot of these like quirky facts about uh people's <laughs> reports of subjective well-being and they they make sense when you spend a bit of time thinking about why you can make sense of the them same. i'm not confident yeah. that i always know what the explanation is because sometimes it's it well that's not what i meant to, to the explanation i just meant that like that happiness would could be i don't know subjectively felt differently by toggling these levers in different ways right there's just so many different combinations yeah. that can get you happiness and unhappiness one seven might be completely different to another seven uh one two could be completely different to another two but there are some general mm. trends <laughs> right yeah. um and the general trends are perhaps surprising um i mean one of the one of the things we haven't noted is that this is the sort of psychological feeling of happiness. So the existence of positive emotions matters more than the absence of negative emotions. So feelings of happiness do more for people's subjective experience of living well than just not feeling really bad all the time, um, which is interesting. And it makes me think of sort of stereotypes of living the rat race life where everything's kind of mundane. Nothing's particularly unpleasant but nothing is very good either and how sort of monotonous that can be. Um, so like there's no, there's no suffering involved. So there's a sense in which things aren't going for us is, is your joy ceiling returning, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 it's funny when you, you put it like that. Cause I think like it actually does, I, I suspect 
don't know how to say this without just calling out my employer. Uh. <laughs> also, I really want to start a hashtag movement, which is hashtag what's your joy ceiling. I was actually <laughs> wondering if we should do a comparison and evaluate our, our own happiness individually for a while and then sort of see how we match up. <laughs> this sounds exhausting. <laughs> Anyway, I'm too competitive. I'm too competitive. <laughs> <laughs> so it does actually seem. I, first, I always think of Office Space when he's uh-huh. in the hypnotist's office and he's explaining that every day he's just a little sadder, and every day is the worst day of his life. Right, and it's because of there's there's no specific bad experience that he can point to, right? There's no pain kind of causing experience he's having. It's just the routine, mundane sort of boringness of his life makes it insufferable, Uh, (laughs) right? And it's sort of like in the aggregate, that extended period of absence of anything really worth caring about or living for is itself kind of can be excruciating in a weird way. That's just to, to defend the... Those miserable bastards. Well, so actually it made me think of our our discussions on the philosophy of work and the people who will subject themselves to shitty work and in part they might have to, but, and and live for the weekend, right? That's the positive affect zone. Mm -hmm. And that's all right. As long as you got that positive affect time, then you can deal with the shit in between. So, so one thing before we move on, uh, one thing I wanted to sort of bring up again, I thought we should come back to the GDP stuff for just a minute because I think there's a, there is an important point to make about the metrics, right? There's a sense in which, just given the causal relationships, it's a perfectly fine variable to pay attention to amongst a family of variables, right? And that's we're not criticizing it as criticizing people who actually attend to that particular metric as being in some ways informative. And I don't think we've necessarily said exactly what our problem with the GDP is, and I think. One way of thinking about the problem is that policymakers, when trying to figure out what kind of policies they should adopt, are trying to optimize something, right? And probably the primary problem is that we we have with contemporary uses of GDP is the vast majority of government policymakers spend the bulk of their time actually trying to optimize that one particular metric. In, at the exclusion of all of these others, right? And and that it's, is the thing that makes it sort of deeply yeah. problematic. It, it's incomplete. Though the other thing you can say in defense of people who do focus on GDP is it's probably one of the few things where there's a lot of clean, clear data on it, right? Out, outside of, um, you know, a handful of psychological studies like the ones that are part of this World Happiness Report, there just isn't as much data on uh, subjective well-being stuff, I'm guessing, um, but part, but in some ways, that's that's symptomatic of this problem, right? Exactly. Which is the human capital. I mean, the big problem is most governments take most of their human capital and actually devote that human capital to that one variable, as opposed to all of these other variables. And that's why there's so much data available for, you know, measuring GDP, because that's where all the human capital has ultimately been devoted to. And so, one of you know, it seems like. The only way to avoid that kind of defensibility of using that metric is to ultimately reorganize government departments to actually have some that collect and focus on these other metrics and actually aim 
at those metrics. So let's move on from the results and the sort of explanations of, of happiness a bit, and we'll move into some of the um, chapters that come after, which fo- focus on particular phenomena re- related to happiness. So the chapter three in the report it focuses on happiness and voting behavior. And the particular questions that the authors set out to answer are the following. First, are happier people any more or less likely to engage with politics and when it comes to it, turn out to vote? And if so, does their level of happiness influence whom they ultimately vote for? In particular, are happier people any likelier to vote to for incumbents? And maybe one of the more interesting and, and timely questions is to what extent might levels of unhappiness and happiness in general play a role in driving support for populist and authoritarian politicians? And in particular, they're thinking of the right-wing populist um, politicians that we're seeing pop up all over the place. Okay, so first question. Are happier people more likely to engage with politics for this first question? And I guess, uh, do they turn out to vote more? It's the first question that they consider. So, yeah, if you construe it as, do they turn out to vote more, the answer is yes. Which in itself, I mean, there's so much room for cynical jokes after 2016. Like, this this finding is just going to be completely reversed, right? Or or maybe it's just that the people who (laughs) were happy turned out to vote, they're now miserable, (laughs) <laughs> and so it's just going to mess up all the time. Well, no, because the other way, are happier people more or less likely to come out to vote? Right? We just truncate the question to that. Uh, no, because they're comfortable. Right. right? They're, kind of, they're content, so they don't. So it is possible, I think, that happier people might be less likely to get out to vote because things are good. Uh, they don't have the sort of motivation that comes with things being bad. Yeah, so, so, so they actually they cite that as being the kind of common sense understanding of this, and then... But they argue is that, in fact, the opposite is true. So happier people do vote more, though once you get up to a certain point of happiness, it kind of tails off. It's not like the happiest people vote way more than people who are pretty happy. But crucially, people who are unhappy vote way less. And, you know, there's a number of reasonable explanations for that. Um, I mean, you could think about the interactions with um, socioeconomic status. You could think of depression. Right, it's gonna just make you yeah. less likely to go outside uh, right. and vote, or you just don't think that it's worth your time. Yeah, right. And this is where it matters, I think, what's driving people's happiness and what's driving their unhappiness, as to whether or not it's going to change their levels of engagement. If you're really unhappy, because you know, one, if we take those six options that we've been talking about, and part of the reason it's really driving your unhappiness is corruption then you might act very differently from somebody who's right. really unhappy because of a lack of generosity in the local community, right? Where you really needed support and it wasn't there for you. So, you know, that could be um, lots, of, lots of room for sort of weird mm-hmm. effects to crop up in the data there. So we've got um, turning out to vote, which is what we've just been talking about, but engage with politics is pretty vague. So, right. you know, engaging with, engage with politics, the first thing that actually comes to my mind is people knitting um, the pink, <laughs> pink hats for the women's protests, the women's marches, because <laughs> that, that's very different than turning out to vote, right? You might contribute. Knitting. <laughs> Maybe you're a speed knitter, you know, and that's you think that that can be your most effective 
means of engagement, <laughs> or that's just the way in which you're currently motivated to engage with politics. If anyone, any listener is a speed knitter, you definitely owe us a five-star rating because <laughs> on what other podcast will you get such a shout out? Speed knitters are really impressive. As someone Actually, that's who probably has, a speed knitting podcast, so I should know what am I talking about. <laughs> as someone who, is, who has attended National Knit and Public Days and seen the very proficient elderly <laughs> women knit at speeds you couldn't possibly imagine. I, I think you shouldn't underrate speed knitting. I imagine if I was starting to knit I would, I would, and I went out in public on one of those days, I would have the same feeling that I have when I go to the gym and there's all these like huge guys in there who are lifting a ton. I would just feel so inadequate and I'd just stay home. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going the other way. I'm just like, why, bro? No, that's your... I thought you... And then, Michael, I thought you were going to go the other way, which is your sort of sense of competitiveness coming out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Give yourself a, a knitting injury. Spear yourself I, with a thumb trying to knit too fast. No, <laughs> I, I'm only competitive at things that I can be good at. <laughs> that's smart. That's I, smart. I have the worst, like, small hand-eye coordination. <laughs> we could get you some really big needles. It, yeah. And glasses. Uh, big glasses, I mean, you have glasses. Anyway, other, other ways that people might engage with politics such that their happiness might be relevant. I mean, you already mentioned, right, like protesting. The, the, the knitting was part of protest activity. I wasn't even thinking that far along in the process. I was just thinking about <laughs> knitting the hats. But I know, but you're you, right. You're you, right. Did, you did actually mention a, as part of, they were doing it as part of protest activity. <laughs> well, um, that's activism need not be... Protesting, yeah, but right, right. I mean, any kind of of activism may ultimately be about, in some ways, fundamentally changing your government in ways that you recognize can't be changed while working sort of internally within the constraints of your government, right? And those are ways of engaging with politics, but not through participatory democracy or anything like that. And if pe so, question: If people are does happiness impact those alternative ways of uh, of engaging? Right? Or do people engage more when they're more or less happy in those alternative kind of activist ways? Yeah, I mean, so what they find is that happier people vote more, but they're less likely than people who are less happy, I guess, to put it in the weakest way possible, um, to engage in sort of confrontational modes of political engagement like protesting. And makes sense. I mean, it's it's fairly intuitive. Right. That if you're feeling rather disaffected, that you are going to see political engagement as requiring these alternative outlets, and right. not engaging directly with because of the things that Hannah mentioned earlier. Right. Yeah. Like if you see your government is corrupt and fucked, then what's the you, point? Your vote doesn't your vote doesn't matter. You have to do something right. else. <laughs> Does being engaged with politics. Can that also be taken to mean reading political news and keeping informed? And not actually performing any particular kind of action. Because if I think about my own attitude towards engaging with politics, mood definitely affects how much and what kinds <laughs> of political news that I want to be aware of. And if, if since 2016 election, in the States at least, a lot of people have constantly commented about how they're choosing to keep themselves actively ignorant of political situations writ large, which is a little bit of sort of, you know, abandoning responsibilities, perhaps, right? In the name of self-preservation. But there's I also that it. kind of side to it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and like, there's, you know, for a lot of people, that's 
it, it is important for their sort of day-to-day levels of happiness, whether or not they engage with it. So does that count? I don't think they measured that. So I think okay. given it'd be tough to it'd be tough to measure. Yeah. Well, you, you know, would just like, ask people like, <laughs> well, yeah, but I know then the Dunning Kruger effect. Well, no, like, you'd ask like, do you read stuff? I, right, no, that's where yeah. people tend to overestimate. You, you think people overestimate, you think that they think they read, but they actually can't read or don't read. Yes, I think that's yes. exactly right. Because they scroll through social media and they read titles. Oh, shit. And actually, one of, I've been, uh, been doing an independent study with one of my students. I don't know if he listens to this podcast or not, but one of the psychological studies that he found in his research this semester, which has been about testimony on the internet, um, is that one of the things that really elicits this sort of feeling of understanding and confidence in people is simple, short sentences. So reading <laughs> bulleted lists or reading titles gives people a really strong sense of sort of understanding. This is something that often comes up uh, during presiden- presidential elections. People will comment on the grade level at which people speak. It's like Donald Trump was like fourth or sixth grade. I forget what it was, but so so the most so yeah, the, they use the the Flesh Kincaid reading scale, right? And that's basically looking at the number of syllables and words on average that people use, and number of words and sentences, right? And it's sort of a composite of that those values. And uh, the typical politician speaks like a presidential candidate speaks at like an eleventh or twelfth grade level, um, sometimes lower, right? Like 10th but trump was actually speaking at a fourth grade level in most of his speeches that's effective communication well it turns out it is yeah well so i mean if i'm remembering rightly um the study that i mentioned was specifically about uh information retained and feelings of of understanding on social media platforms so it was looking at the sort of digital thing which maybe helps to round out some of this pre-existing data about say presidential speech um yeah one of the one of the slogans in new zealand about this the way that it shows up there is whether or not the politician sounds like the kind of guy you'd go to the pub with oh they they right? st- you guys so. stole that from us that was yeah. that was how george bush won. That, that was yeah, george bush w. that was how we got thing. w stole ownership oh it's american exceptionalism we started your it. your culture is always <laughs> 20 years behind we've gone through excuse this. me who had the women's vote first I said culture. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the really interesting questions is the next one, which is uh, how does happiness affect who people vote for? And and here it is really intuitive. And and the finding is just that happier people vote for incumbents incumbents more. Happier people vote for establishment parties more. And this makes sense, right? I mean, it's a basic, it's sort of an application of philosophical conservatism, uh, conservatism, right? It's just like, if things are going well for you, don't make drastic changes, right? Because it's risky. Uh, I mean, that's sort of the obvious way to make sense of this. Yeah. And I broke, don't fix it. 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 I. I struggle with this a little bit. Well, so I'm thinking about the presence of positive emotion versus absence of negative emotions. And I'm just sort of lifting that way of looking at the situation and applying it to this weird voting behavior, right? Which would be an absence of negative stuff, but an absence of, I mean, things going well. I'm trying to think of things going well politically. Is that, is that lots of positive stuff happening or is that just not lots of bad stuff happening? Um, I certainly yeah. <laughs> interpret the question as lots of bad stuff isn't happening, which would allow for sort of a neutral status quo, um, even if that status quo isn't giving you your, you know, high eight utopia. 
Um, the fact that it's not sort of supplying you with these bad experiences might be enough, which is, I don't know, maybe that's a little bit weird, but it could also just be inappropriate to take the affect reading and apply it to this political situation reading. But I, I think it, it, <laughs> all I can think is that d- does the government spark joy? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> so I, I, th- I think progressives stand in a kind of interesting relationship to this stuff, right? It, it's, it's hard I guess we're weird, right? Because I would imagine. Well, I don't, I don't know if this is right. How do progressives rate on on happiness? Unhappy. On happiness, with respect to happiness. I I don't know. We we just don't know, right? Who the fuck knows? Um, most. So I mean, like I th- I don't know, but I do know most of the like really left wing people that I know, and people who like when you think of the stereotype, like the Portlandia stereotype, <laughs> those people should be happy, right? <laughs> like, their lives are going reasonably well. There's more like a, uh, it seems to me like if they were honestly answering, they would say, I'm genuinely happy, but my my moral sensibility tells me that the country as a whole is not, right? Um, I, I would guess that's roughly the position that we're in, right? I, yeah, yeah, I was thinking like individually maybe happy, right. but politically unhappy. So... <laughs> So it, it's tough then, right? Because then you, you have to – like if, if we're saying that the kind of conservatism that happy people are employing by sticking with the incumbents is, is rational. Well, I mean this is where it's tough, right? You get to this really difficult question to like how well can we tinker with government without breaking things? <laughs> That's not a question we're going to answer here. but I think probably the, the sentiment of sticking with the government represents a kind of risk aversion that is probably – fairly common, you know, for most fairly conservative people, right? So in some ways, that's just, it's really not that surprising. It just is a natural reflection of their psychology. Though, it's, I mean, it's one thing that's interesting about the study is that they're, they they demonstrate that people's response to their emotional states aren't just sort of limited to ways that would be traceable to what's going on in the world around them, right? Like these yeah. these voting patterns that you see where unhappy people tend to vote uh, against incumbents um, and happier people vote in favor of incumbents, that pattern shows up even when it's very obvious that the causal, the, the source, the root of the unhappiness has nothing to do with the government right? yeah. and any policies that it's adopted. Right, so there's some hilarious tidbits they include about this. Um, uh, <laughs> this is great. Uh, so they, they, some of the studies they use um, focus on people who have recently become widowed, so they're less happy, and people who are recently widowed support the government less. Uh, but this is a great one. It's been shown in the United States that incumbents benefit in terms of vote share following local college football wins. <laughs> That's that's great. Uh, a second one, which is kind of funny. In addition, rain has been shown to affect voting patterns in ballot propositions in Switzerland, with rainfall decreasing the vote shares for change. So things like rain, local sports victories, right? I mean, so this is to complicate the story that I presented before, which is to say, well, you know, people who are happier are being kind of rational. This throws into question the extent to which people are, you know, at least a good <laughs> chunk of people are voting for for sort of rational or on on the basis of rational reasons at all, whether it's just sort of an impulsive action dependent on their mood. 
that's pretty concerning. <laughs> I mentioned this to you when we were talking about it the other day, that it surprises it surprises me to read it, at least, because... And maybe I just know maybe too many academics and... <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably right. <laughs> um, because... I don't know. It kind of it feels like people's convictions and their values and stuff would be sufficiently strong to see out a bit of rain, <laughs> right? The rain one, I can't make sense of it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I would have thought it would go in the other direction. Exactly. Maybe, maybe Switzerland's I, very dry. I don't know. I think it's. I I, I, I wouldn't have wet. thought that either. There's like yeah, waterfalls, I do, I and know. given the plants and stuff that I know yeah. that are there, the Alps, you know. Well, also, but, so the decreases vote shares for change. I would think that goes hand in hand with like voting against incumbents. Yep. Right? And so it, they're only happy when it rains. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but still, it feels like the weather... Sorry, I, I had to do that. Yeah, no, that that's fair. <laughs> the weather, I don't know, just doesn't... But again, maybe I just know lots of particularly epistemically arrogant uh, people um, who... <laughs> that's also enough... definitely true. <laughs> Put enough of their identity in their political positions that they wouldn't be so easily swayed. But for people who maybe just don't care as much and aren't as invested because their lives aren't such that they can spend so much time thinking about, you know, what the what the government is up to. Right. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe the way to look at it is it not about like changing minds, but like getting people motivated to go out. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Bama won. I'm going to go vote. Well, so we do or, know. Yeah, it's raining. I got to get out there. <laughs> so some things we do know, right, um, is that, at least it's true in New Zealand, how the how the rugby team does, how the local rugby teams do, can really, well, can, can significantly affect domestic abuse hmm. rates. So sports, you know, if people's emotions are affecting that, <laughs> and if we think people's emotions are affecting their voting behaviors, then... Perhaps it's not so surprising that things like sports um, could really strongly affect people's moods. It makes me wonder, actually, about what other other things we could toggle in everyday life that would really affect. Well, so that that makes me worry, right? Because as political voting. parties become more savvy about this stuff, yeah, like mm-hmm. tweak the Facebook algorithm, a few uh, more yes. puppies. That's and exactly. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> the, the the worry. Yeah. Like that's a legitimate worry right that i don't know if you guys listened to the piece on the trust engineers department of facebook i can't remember which podcast it was on it was like radio lab or mm-hmm. one of the those but they had a discussion of basically facebook had experiments of doing exactly that kind of thing yeah where they basically you could see the impact of them just posting a thing showing that a, one of your friends had voted that day right and the probability that that would actually lead other people to go out and vote and then they could just do sort of targeting of particular sort of political backgrounds and swing elections right and that in itself is scary but then if you can just do it with people's moods so you can do it behind the scenes without even having to involve politics at all then you can do it in a way that nobody can actually assess you just have like videos of rainfall <laughs> right. You well, so I West, think a just video, show less puppies or more right. puppies. Yeah. Well, but we also know that Facebook did run some experiments like this a number of years ago. Um, they're working with some researchers to see if they could affect people's moods by changing what showed up in their feeds. So 
we know that they already have done work on this and we know that the results showed that they could do it. So, you know, showing, showing people that the people who they dislike voted for the person that they likely dislike based on their demographics is one thing. That's sort of political all the way down, right? And then some tribalism. But literally showing people puppies and kittens or Good swing election. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, how far does it go? We know people are very affected in mood by color. So if they start rotating the color scheme just to make it a little bit more interesting, a little bit fresh, a little bit more variable, that could in fact be changing. And yet the green party still struggles, right? Green is the color that was like most beneficial to human beings. I think I think they suffer from other. It's a small effect, yeah. <laughs> well, no, but it's counterproductive for them because they're not incumbents. That's right. true. Yeah. Let's, let's, so let's move to the next question now. This sort of leads us into the next question, is um, which is, do people who are unhappy vote more for populists? Where they're focusing here on on parties that are sort of anti-establishment, and in particular, they mention setting up a dichotomy between, you know, the the virtuous commoner versus the corrupt elite. They also mention things like uh, nativism and nationalism, and in opposition to cosmopolitanism so they're really talking about right-wing populism here and they don't have much to say about left-wing populism nor about the what causes someone to support one side or the other Um, but the findings suggest that lower life satisfaction scores do uh, tend to result in people voting for right-wing populists and authoritarians more so they cite examples from the french 2017 presidential election those with the lowest subjective well-being reports supported Marine Le Pen the most. The h- highest subjective well-being supported establishment parties. Similar findings for voting leave and Brexit. Similar for voting for Trump in 2016. A couple interesting details. Uh, higher positive emotions led to smaller swings in support for authoritarians. Um, and interestingly, negative emotions did not have much of an effect, negative affect. So basically, having bad emotional states more regularly did not actually have an impact on the likelihood that people would support populist candidates. Which is is surprising. The other, before we discuss, um, interesting tidbit, these effects present across income groups. They are higher, I think, for the lower income groups, but for all of the income groups, you could see as happiness or life satisfaction goes down, their support for these right-wing populists goes up. And I guess, so we can talk about that, but they also, they raise a puzzle, which is that they note that there has been an increase in support for populists, but overall, unhappiness has not gone up. So question, is it just that it just so happens that in the past few years, the anti-establishment candidates just are taking this certain kind of brand where previously the anti-establishment candidates were not of the sort of populist type. Uh, so, so it's just sort of, you know, it, it wouldn't have mattered. They could have been non-populist. They were Ralph conservative. <laughs> right, well, they could have been, yeah, they could have been Green Party, you know, anti-establishment things. So we do know, for instance, that a lot of Trump voters, for instance, were also Bernie Sanders supporters. And, you know, when presented with those two options, but happy with both. Why? Well, because of the sort of 
anti-establishment reasons. So, I mean, is it is it accidental in a sense? Um, and, you know, perhaps people realize that po- political figures or at least political influences, if I can use that term, <laughs> recognize that one of the things to capitalize on just is anti-establishment and that, you know, building this kind of populist, there's just a lot of sentiments that go into this sort of parcel. So is it, yeah. I don't know, do you, do you, what do you guys think? Well, that's like, so that's in line with the hypothesis that they put forward is that these populist candidates are finding ways to connect with the unhappy populations more effectively and sort of messaging to them in a way that prior candidates hadn't in the past, right? And that might actually be part of explaining this puzzle of having basically constant levels of unhappiness and yet rising levels of populism. So that seems fairly plausible. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, it's, it's worth noting they, they, they don't commit themselves to that. They say, not sure, here's a possibility. I'm certainly not in a position to say more than that. There's another interesting puzzle that they raise, which is, okay, suppose that populists depend on unhappiness, right, for their political success. Um, and note our earlier observations about unhappiness and incumbents, right? Is it possible for populists to actually sustain their political support and power once they've obtained it when their primary messaging is actually the failure of the government and people's general unhappiness? One one thing that might suggest yes is that I remember one of the figures they had showed people's responses to so d- d- various depending on their levels of happiness how do they feel about things like democracy or cosmopolitanism or things like we need a strong ruler and people who had lower happiness scores said we need a strong a strong leader right which suggests authoritarianism right even so as once they're incumbents right. So as long as the authoritarian keeps them unhappy in a state <laughs> where they need to be ruled with an iron fist <laughs> then something like that i'm getting some hobbesian feelings <laughs> uh. yeah i mean in the end th- that particular puzzle is difficult but the overall phenomenon i don't think is too surprising right the typical explanations of the rise of right-wing pop- populism have to do with well typically they'll talk people will talk about like sort of growing discontent with the world system um, i guess what's yeah. interesting is that we don't see an overall increase in discontent it could be that, you know, as you said, rather people who are discontent now have someone speaking to them in a way that is actually getting them to be politically engaged, where previously they weren't. Okay, so the last chapter of the report that we'll, we'll talk about this week is the chapter on happiness and pro-social behavior. And the question here basically is, first, is there any correlation between pro-social behavior where, in particular, we're talking about volunteering uh, your time and donating money? Is there a correlation between those things and life satisfaction? And then questions about uh, whether those correlations, if there's a causal link uh, or whether they're just correlations. So I think I'll just give the the general upshots first. The answer is yes for both. There's a correlation between both volunteering and donating and happiness. However, 
the causal link is less clear or not present with respect to volunteering, but it is present with giving money, which is to say that uh, if you just take random people and sort of have them volunteer in a study, as some people did, unless people were already sort of psyched about volunteering, they weren't made more happy by volunteering. And they get a little bit into the details of of who benefited most and under what conditions. Um, however, there's a stronger causal effect with giving money. That is something that uh, if people do, it does seem to make them happier. It's probably worth just sort of noting, uh, like for the, the caveats you mentioned about who benefits from volunteering, one of the things that they noted, right, is that like once there are certain segments of the population that do a lot of volunteering who don't end up seeing general benefits and, and rises in or their levels of happiness, right? Obvious case, teenagers, right? Partic- particularly teenagers who have to build this portfolio of pro-social things that they do to game the college system, right? They don't end up happier as a result of being sort of feeling forced to engage in those kind of activities. Whereas uh, the elderly were significantly benefited from these volunteering experiences. Yeah. So there's a funny tidbit here. So they say older people do benefit a lot from volunteering. Also, those who think other people are basically good, <laughs> whereas cynical <laughs> cynical people who don't think people are basically good do not benefit from volunteering. Um, although interestingly, um, people with greater degree with a greater degree of depression get happiness benefits out of volunteering. As do surprisingly people with low agreeableness scores. Yeah, this um, is this is the thing that I was really surprised by. Yeah, that was strange. <laughs> like, I, especially when you think about like who are these low agreeableness people who think people are basically good? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those, those two findings seem to conflict with each other. Eh, depends how self-deprecating you are, right? I'm an asshole, <laughs> but everybody else is all right. <laughs> I, I suspect it's it's more like people who are lo- have really low uh, agreeableness measures are the kind of people who have a hard time connecting with others, right? Sort of organically, but being in situations where you're volunteering is provides an opportunity to actually connect in ways that you wouldn't ordinarily if everything's coming to fisticuffs all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that that's just. Interesting tidbits to know. They do talk about, so when when it comes to um, donating money, well, there's a couple of interesting things here. First, so they say pro-social spending. So it's not just actually donating to money. In general, um, experimental findings suggest that people who just spend money on other people are made happy by that. Much more happy than people who spend money on themselves. So people are made happier by spending on other people, but not made happier by spending on themselves. Interesting, perhaps not surprising. Interestingly, this even extends to paying taxes. They say people who pay higher (laughs) taxes, controlling for income and other happiness predictors are more happy than people who don't pay higher taxes. That's a weird one. Yeah, that that (laughs) is a... runs directly against all of my personal uh, interactions with anyone who's ever paid taxes. Right, but this is an aggregate global effect not just an american effect attitude towards paying your taxes is very different in other places i think mo- in most places they're like yeah tax I, know, I have a lot of friends who are not american who would be really happy paying more taxes and actually i was doing a lot of reading um for one of these previous ones that the three of us did about uh, it might have been 
might have been Denmark where they were doing these surveys, but it was people talking about childcare provisions mm-hmm. and uh, parental leave provisions. And people are outright saying, we pay really high taxes, but it gets paid into the system that causes all these benefits. So we're really happy to do so. Yeah, but Denmark's like number two. I mean, so they're like, they're good at this. <laughs> I'm saying, I mean, like maybe maybe what this is getting at is is the fact that perhaps you would benefit from volunteering and I would not. I'm more cynical about how people view taxes than you. <laughs> that that seems obvious. <laughs> I was gonna say the other thing that is surprising that is uh, surprising about just that initial finding that pro social spending is associated with higher levels of well being. That of course is in, really intuitive in wealthy states. But even in cases of extreme deprivation, it still is a phenomenon that seems fairly persistent, right? So, yeah, I think that they, they describe this as a what was, what's the phrase they use? A human universal or something like that, or a, yeah. a, as a universal quality of humans um, <laughs> benefiting from pro social spending and and things like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I kind of I think about advertising, and I think about how much work advertisers are constantly putting into the treat yourself. Right, get yourself something a little special. Or if they really wanted to get money out of people, it's much easier to just have birthdays or, you know, appreciation gifts and things like this. Like you feel really good. You feel a lot better buying Mother's Day gifts, which this podcast is probably going to come out close to May. So don't forget about Mother's Day. There is a tax never... levy for every day that you <laughs> forget about Mother's Day. This, this, every everybody has that, right? Is that just is that just my? I think that. That might just be you, your family. Yeah, that's that's definitely just your family. But don't worry, that one I will remember. <laughs> oh, you got to make you up for the your... lack of the egg hunt. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, I mean, that kind of uh, that feels right to me. I feel a lot better spending money on other people. It's a lot easier to spend money on other people than it is on yourself. You kind of have to justify that. Yep. Buying yourself things, upgrading your own stuff, spending your stuff. Where it comes to buying things for other people i don't really need any other reason than it's going to marginally benefit them <laughs> i imagine uh, probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast will agree but i know some people who would hear what you just say said and say like what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> i find it incredibly easy to spend on my, i don't personally but I, I know people who would say that to spend on themselves well it turns out they're in the minority apparently so <laughs> yeah. i'll but take it, but- my <laughs> But it is interesting that for like the, the the report does acknowledge that there is that personality type, mm-hmm. right? And they're exactly the kind of people who cannot benefit from volunteering, right? And that there's a certain set of values that people typically espouse who are the people who actually benefit from these kind of charitable activities, right? And so like one of the questions that the chapter raised was, well, to what degree can people are people malleable in that respect right that you can actually promote that kind of that the values that go hand in hand with this kind of personal benefit being obtained from generosity yeah and so they actually give some details on uh, which we'll get to this question the conditions under which people benefit the most from giving. So they have three conditions. So one is they feel free to choose whether or how to help. So this speaks to your point about teenagers who basically sort of feel compelled to volunteer in order to have the educational and career opportunities that they want. They they benefit less because they kind of feel like they have to do that. Two, feeling connected to the people they're helping. So it helps if you can sort of 
in, actually interact with the person where it, whether if it's a really impersonal kind of process they don't benefit as much and then finally seeing how their help can make a difference and and this is something i think we run into a lot when we've talked about charity and intro ethics courses when students are really people in general are, are really concerned perhaps rightly so about the corruption of various charities and so they're they're very wary about giving to charity precisely because they're not sure whether their donation is actually going to make a difference. And so they want to be able to see it to, to sort of be sure that it actually does have a, a positive effect. Yeah, I think my charity PowerPoint slides from however long ago might actually have each of these three points and then rebuttals to why each of these three points should not affect your willingness whether to give. Whether you do it or not, yeah. <laughs> um, which is interesting. Yeah. And finally, they, they ask... Well, are there things that we can do? And here's where you know you get into sort of policy, I guess. Are there things that you can do to increase pro-sociality and thus increase levels of happiness? Um, and so one of the things they say is, well, studies have shown that feelings of awe, inspiring awe in people increases their pro-sociality. So we should induce offer. So in particular, when people are exposed to like really spacious views, right? This makes them want to give more, uh, which seems hard to sort of act on. Uh, you know, like you just sort of place everyone on a mountain for a little while, then let them go you back send, to the world. You send them to Iceland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but so what they say is um, what you can do is invest in public green spaces, parks, trails, beaches, just having more nature, right, actually boosts people's kindness and, and thus their own happiness, right? So so you do get a kind of interesting policy proposal out of this, which I am very fond of. I think that would be great. Plants are nice. Is there the effect also achieved when people are shown images of? Because I thought they mentioned that as well. I think so. I'm not so sure. The fun I, think, I think because we're also invested in counteracting climate change and not only people's happiness that we should you know try to get the real thing real Michael's just like just put screens up put yeah. screens up of Before, screens. Where no, billboards. no no guys i have a better solution you okay. don't need reality you just need virtual oh reality. he's trying to sell his virtual reality again uh, <laughs> no, techie <laughs> so seriously though there go into a vr headset you can go to iceland right and you have the experience of seeing that, that's way more realistic than just looking at an image. And it has, at least in terms of like the brain impact, the awe-inspiring sort of experience. Okay, so for well, people who can afford the VR, do that. I, but also advocate no, the gut for public green spaces. No, they're just a government VR program. They're <laughs> missing the point. <laughs> I think the resources... The Badlands first policy proposal. The resources that have to go into producing all of these computers and chips for all these fancy VR machines, when we could just... Hannah, we don't need the environment. <laughs> Someone's trying to get out of the family hiking. <laughs> My goodness. Public green spaces, vertical <laughs> gardens, green roofs. Donate it. Heard natural, it here first. <laughs> those um, houses that have been built in some places where you actually just train tree roots to form the structure of the house. Hmm. You know, those kinds of those kinds of things. Okay, More I'm plants Michael's and crazy. buildings. Before we, go too, uh, before we wrap up here, because we've really gone on too long, there's one thing I have to bring up, which is if you actually look at the table... Uh, where the stats are compi compiled um, concerning volunteering and donating, uh, 
this blew my mind and it cannot be right unless you know maybe i'm just a, a miser and i and cynical i didn't know this but apparently according to the stats here 62 percent of u.s respondents say they've given to a charity in the past month over 40 percent say they've volunteered in the past month how is that possible so i don't know <laughs> that about the volunteering right. but amazon smile okay how, what percent passive. of Amazon users, Amazon users do you think actually even do that? And does that count? It's charity. Um, I, so, like, the question is, like does it count pennies? in the minds of the person donating? And supermarkets almost always have these. A lot of people, people spend a shitload more time in malls than we do. They walk down the street past people with collection buckets. That's got to be, like, all the adult population. <laughs> close to it, including people who are way too old to be using Amazon and certainly an Amazon Smile. <laughs> I'm just I'm just trying to figure out what was going on in pe- people's minds. Like, how are they stretching this question such that 62% of them could be like, yeah, I did that. I don't know. I mean, this is actually, I think the Texas U.S. Counts. is one of the countries with the highest rates of charitable giving. And it surprised me because of the attitudes I get about charity when I started teaching charity. But I actually, it was something my students told me about. And, and I think it is true. Um, and I think it's just, it's sort of baked into a lot of, transactions that you are asked to give a dollar or two dollars or something to charity when you make regular everyday purchases part, that, right and part of it is you don't have so you also don't have kids right which force you into community <laughs> yeah. engagement in ways that you don't you know if you don't have okay. kids be that as it may 62 percent is way too high and if you want to if you want to say high? higher than expected way higher than expected like, <laughs> i don't think that's accurate i'm putting it that way like, that would be wonderful uh, I don't think it's accurate. And, and if you, you know, you could maybe try to make that argument there. 40% volunteered in the past month? That is, there is no way that that is so close this is, No, this is why, so this is why the, the children, children thing. Children thing is really relevant, yeah. yeah. 40%? That's so many people. I know. Lots of people have kids. All my, what most people dude, do. No way. <laughs> no, I'm all of absolute bullshit on this. How, you first, just, so, first of all, how many, uh, if you How have many kids, of your friends have kids? <laughs> How many months out of the year are they volunteering because of their kids? Sports. Every, every single month. Oh, they're counting. Like, Sports, counting. Oh, that's helping BS. out. Helping out at the school with all of the it's being on the PTA. Concession stands. Helping, and, yeah, running lemonade sales, sewing bake uniforms sales. for the school play. What percentage? The thing is, okay, what's the, what's the percentage of the population that has going to young kids? A lot of people go to chid. Twenty percent, fifteen percent. It can't be that high. I don't know how many people have kids, but I think a lot of people, you know, their work might do community drive stuff. Um, Yeah, my my work does. Doing fun runs. So I'm just an asshole, I guess. I mean, yep, yep. I I, I I don't buy it for a second. I think the religious community aspect could be a lot higher than as well, right? It's incredibly high in the vast majority of people who go to church regularly are going to check. Every month. Yeah, because yes. they go to church every week, and then they engage in volunteering. But it's only a small proportion of the church community who actually does that. Okay, well, I've expressed my incredulity there. Uh, <laughs> I look forward to, to be given some hard evidence that uh, suggests that I'm wrong about this. And actually, it wasn't just the U.S. A lot of these, a lot of countries uh, had these really high numbers in the past month. Anyways, that was a fun chat, guys. <laughs> yeah. So, so next week we'll continue our discussion on on the report, and we'll be talking about. Again, uh, 
I think the chapters are the sad state of happiness in the U.S., and then there's chapters on the effects of social media on happiness and also addiction. So that ought to be interesting. Lots of fun. Lots, <laughs> lots of fun. Probably a 3 out of 10 on the happiness scale. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can help it grow by subscribing and by giving it a good rating or a review. And don't forget to check out our website, badlandsphilosophy.com, where you can find a list of citations for every episode and access written content that we post there regularly. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that through our website, and you can also find us on Twitter at at the Badlands Pod. Thanks again for listening.